welcome back to Arts About. A show about art that's a work of art in itself, apparently. Yeah, very good. Very good. Yes, it is indeed, Mark. You've given it away for our listeners because, of course, John isn't with us today. He's still in Sydney, swanning about while his latest exhibition, Regatta, accumulates red dots. You're listening to Arts About It, which is brought to you by the generosity of the McClellan Sculpture Park and Gallery, and you're here in the studios with us, the marvellously obtuse Mark and me, Sally Bailey. Have you had a good week, Mark? Yes, I've just, I'm very impressed by those Australian cricketers tampering with their balls oh, still, huh? It's extraordinary, <laughs> isn't it? We're all reeling with the stupidity of it all. Well, you um, must remember that Steve Smith is half English, so you know, we have to forgive him that. It's to be expected, do you think? Well, look, I don't want to be, you've got to be careful. You don't want to be too French. No. No, of course. This week, we have uh, on the program, we're going to have singer, composer, conductor and RPP presenter Anthony Ransom joining us. Anthony brings opera favourites to the air every Wednesday on RPP and he's written an opera himself about local legend William Buckley and we're going to hear from him about how it's going and when. We're also going to hear a little bit from Will and Gay, but I thought it was time. We hadn't heard those the dulcet tones of those two for a little mm. while. I thought we might listen to them, and they're going to be talking about one of John's favourite subjects, which is art heists. Uh, we're also going to, I think, if we're going to give a go to phoning John, he's, as I said, he's up in Sydney still, and uh, he said that he may take a moment out of his busy schedule to talk to us, which would be really nice. So just before we get on to that and we talk to Anthony, here's a, ta- uh, a taste of the opera that's going to be coming to the Rosebud Memorial Hall. The story of William Buckley's life and adventures in Victoria um, is an incredible story and it's a story of many things, not least the tale of generosity of the local Indigenous tribes, but it's also part of the um, arduous settlement of Australia by European expansionists. Uh, it occurred right here on the Mornington Peninsula in an area known as Cameron Bight, which was a vantage point to control trade in the area, but also a base for further expansion into Tasmania and Melbourne from New South Wales. It proved to be ultimately uh, unsuitable for many reasons and not least that there was insufficient water and it was ultimately abandoned and relocated to Tasmania, but not before 21 convicts escaped. And the protagonist in this story that most of us are familiar with is William John Buckley, who remained and lived on the Bellarine Peninsula with the Wathaurong people for 32 years until he returned to European life after walking into John Batman's camp in in 1835. Our next guest, Anthony, Anthony Ransom, as I have mentioned, uh, has written an opera about this worthy story and is going to be presenting it in Rosebud next year. I think I mentioned it that it was going to be in May. Well, it's actually May 2019. Good morning, Anthony. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Delighted thank to be here, back in the studio, which I know so well. <laughs> Absolutely. How does it feel to be on the other side of the desk? A bit different. <laughs> yeah, it does, I'm sure. Was that you singing that we just heard then? That was me singing, but as you can hear from my scratch held speaking voice, I've more or less given up singing. That was probably my swan song. (laughs) But um, uh, we needed to record something for uh, the video which we made, the PR video, and also for uh, presentation to organisations for for whom we're asking for grants. I found it quite touching the way your voice actually went out of tune at one stage. It it sounded like a young man, in fact, just learning to sing. Professional singers never sing out of tune. Sorry, it wasn't out of tune. It was more that it just went out. Uh, it wasn't out of tune. It was out of um, ring. Something happened. It was quite touching. I well, thought. what we try and do is, is use different colours in the voice mm. as well as different dynamics 
and so on. I'm a okay. teacher, so I should know something about that yes. too. <laughs> okay. Well, some of our listeners, listeners may not realise that you are a very experienced performer yourself, having uh, turned to a musical career in 1968 after a period as an Australian diplomat, mm. I understand. And you've performed in the Hungarian State Opera, the Prague Radio Symphony, the New Philharmonia and the English Chamber of um, Orchestra. Interalia, yeah. That's right. Thank you very much. Um, and you've been back in Australia since the turn of the century, performing, teaching, writing and conducting and clearly composing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, are you performing in your own opera? What I'm doing is conducting it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, we have a very good professional, well-known professional baritone to sing the part of Buckley. Of course you do. We're going to hear a little bit about that in a minute. But you've written um, an opera about one of our local legends, and there are a lot of people in down here on the Morning Peninsula who do know a little bit about William Buckley. You must have done an awful lot of research in the process. Um, uh, what did you find out about him that maybe we don't know? Well, um, I was extremely del del delighted and, and uh, really pleased to have the help of someone like Richard Cotter, the local historian, who's done all the um, research himself, who has also even uh, learnt uh, a lot about the Aboriginal languages, and we actually incorporate some of the Aboriginal languages in the opera with translation so that people know what's going on. Um, but uh, one little story I can tell, we are not uh, long ago over on the Bellarine with uh, a local probus group in a bus, and we had a look at the monument in Indented Head. And the general understanding is, although you said it correctly, uh, that Buckley actually personally met Batman on that occasion. But it was Batman's party, and uh, Gum and a couple of others were the people that he met up with on that occasion. And that's how it comes out in the libretto and in the opera. Well, your, your librettist, uh, that's the person who writes the words for anybody that isn't aware of that, is local historian Richard Cotter, as you have just mentioned. Um, did you work a, a lot together on that storyline? What actually happened was, well, go, going right back to the beginning, I was on, on one occasion in the settlement area and I saw this absolutely lovely natural amphitheatre outside on the Eastern Sister and I thought what a perfect place for something like an opera about Buckley who was right here and that was the germ of the idea. Mm -hmm. I then asked Richard who's a friend of mine whether he'd be interested in, this was five years ago, whether he'd be interested in writing me a libretto and in six months I had it. Incredible. Yeah. Oh so he, he, he obviously was, thought it was a good idea. He obviously did. <laughs> yeah. But what happened uh, then was we worked together as librettists and opera composers do to see if we can um, make it a bit more dramatic here and there, change some of the dialogue aspects and things like that to, to make it flow musically. Mm. Well, uh, Richard Cotter is also, uh, I know that he was a teacher or a lecturer, but he's also written several books which are really important documents, I imagine, for our local history, which yeah. is, you know, Apart um, from Bunurang, uh, No Place for a Colony, and A Short History of the Nepean Peninsula. Um, just reading the titles of these books, it looks as though Richard thought was, and was convinced that settlement here was not a good idea. Well, he's uh, read all the, all the bits of information, all the, 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 the original texts and so on, and he realised that Collins not only uh, wasn't able to find enough water for the settlement, they had to put barrels in, in, the, in the water and uh, try and filter out as much of the salt as possible, which wasn't a great success. But Collins actually didn't want to be there, and as soon as he could, he got away to Hobart and uh, was one of the, the people who founded Hobart effectively mm. in uh, early 1804. Mm. Uh, 
It's it's a mammoth. It must be a mammoth project to actually write an opera. I thought I needed five years. It took me about three to oh, to, to, to get me. to get yes. the writing done uh, with with help from all sorts of different sources. But um, now we've got maybe an even harder task to to raise money, raise interest. We've got a a launch coming up on the fifteenth of April of this year, mm-hmm. uh, but it's. Um, a long period until the actual performances on the 4th and 5th of May uh, in Rosebud 2019. But all of this takes an enormous amount of time. I've still got to audition people. Uh, I've got to go through a whole series of rehearsals and so on. Now, you have some pretty high-profile artists already who are committed to the project. Who have you got? uh, who's playing, for yes. example, who's James playing Baxter. James Clayton, that's right. right. His name slipped in mind for a minute. Yeah. James Clayton is a, a well-known um, baritone based in Perth and Wellington. Uh, he performs all over the Southern Hemisphere. I think he's been to Asia as well. He's currently uh, uh, in West Australian opera. He's, he's sung for Opera Australia and so on. Um, and I've heard him sing in an Elgar performance in the Milton Town Hall not long ago. Wonderful baritone, very mm. expressive, and I think he'll be good. So Shanti. he'll be singing that song that we just heard you singing. That's right. Ago. He'll be he'll song, be singing probably, anything baritonal that yes. you heard. And me. just a question, uh, Anthony: the orchestra is it? Is what we heard there was just a bass, a couple of instruments? Well, so it's we very simple accompaniment. I I want the words to come out as clearly as possible. So in fact, what I decided thinking I would originally perform it outside Mm. I would use a woodwind ensemble Mm -hmm. Right. and that means we've got flute, oboe, clarinet, bassoon trombone and a viola plus a keyboard and some drums. Uh, So so it's just a small eight eight person instrumental ensemble Mm -hmm. and that's what it'll be. Okay. Uh, Now uh, playing Playing Buckley's wife, you have an indigenous singer yes. uh, who I believe I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about her. Yes, Shanti Batsky. Batsky. That's right. Um, she's from uh, southern New South Wales, but she lives in Melbourne with her Torres Strait Islander husband. And uh, they came down uh, to visit, and we had a chat about it all. And uh, she's agreed to perform. Um, I got her name from Deborah Cheatham. Uh, who, as you will well know, is very active uh, in Australia as a very great Indigenous singer and composer. Uh, and Shantai is a simply lovely person, and uh, I'm really delighted to, to be able to, uh, to work with her. Yeah, and she's a very good singer as well. Now, we all know how uh, incredibly expensive it is to put on an opera, and I, I understand from discussing with you before, it's actually a fully staged opera as yes, well. Yes, it is. Uh, which, which means, of course, it's costumes and sets, and uh, as well as uh, you know, uh, choreography across a stage, as well as the, the orchestra and rehearsals, etc. Yeah. How on earth are you funding it? Well, um, we are very lucky that we are collaborating with the Rosebud Astral Theatre Society, and you'll know of them. They're amateur, amateur theatricals. They do straight theatre, but they also do Sondheim and, and other musicals. Uh, our director is Nicholas Cannon, who is a young director, but he's directed all over Australia and in Europe already and he recently did a wonderful production of Sondheim's A Little Night Music in the National Theatre in Melbourne. Um, So uh, we're going to be performing with the equipment that the Astral Theatre Society have in the Rosebud Memorial Hall. That's basically why we've chosen it and we've solved the problem of weather and so on. That's why we've given up the idea of doing it outside. Uh, so um, it will be a fully staged uh, performance, and I admire Nicholas's uh, directing ability. Mm. So how are you raising money to actually do it? 
that question. Yes, well, uh, it's going to be expensive. Uh, we've already put in a, uh, for a large grant at Creative Victoria. Yes. We have a grant from an individual donor mm -hmm. uh, who has done a lot of uh, work uh, supporting opera in Melbourne and down here on the peninsula. That's Hans Henkel. Mm -hmm. um, we've just applied for a grant from the Bendigo Bank uh, and we hope from the Shire as well. Mm. You've also we're got looking funding. for individual sponsors. Yes, well, I, that, that's what I was sort of leading to, actually, because you're inviting people to support this project by making a tax-deductible, <laughs> sorry, tax-deductible donation yes. to the Australian Cultural Fund. Yes. Org. Au. Now, that's right. That's an organisation that that you can put up uh, on the on the web what it is you're doing and invite people to participate. Is that correct? Exactly that. And if you go on to Australian Cultural Fund. Org. Au uh, and um, type in the Buckley Opera, it will pop up and with some details about it and there's even a button saying donate and that will allow you to donate. Simple as. Yeah. Now back to the story. So we, we know the story of William Buckley, but it's, you know, it's choosing, it's choosing a, a pathway through that story that, that is where the drama will lie. Yeah. What kind of areas are you focusing? Are you focusing on his life as a, as a convict or as, as a, his life with the Indigenous people here? What, what's the rough so storyline? We needed to get support from the Boonarong and the Wadarong yes. people, um, and that has has been forthcoming. And if I can just digress for a Absolutely, minute. Absolutely. Yes. Um, we've had a simply lovely letter from Uncle Brian Powell, who is the chief Wadarong elder. He's based in Ballarat. And from his letter, I'll just read it if I mm. may. From reading the libretto, I can see that it's written in such a way as to be sensitive to the subject. The story of Buckley and his interaction with my family is not normally shown in such a positive way, and it's refreshing to see that. The true history of this great country needs to be told in such a way that all people can understand and appreciate it. That is very, that's wonderful. Well, that's really, that's in answer to my question, that's perfect. That's well, to go perfect. back to the other part of your question, the opera is going to start with an overture about the, the mysterious, rather dangerous landscape that they've arrived in. There's a, a rather ironic series of scenes uh, where Buckley, as a uh, convict, you've heard him say, I do not deserve to be here, uh, and all of that, and uh, the convicts, the other convicts have a chance to say a few things, and the also... Uh, members of the Marines uh, have a party, a very rum-fueled party and this, that and the other. So there's plenty of talk about the actual settlement itself. Then there's a, a scene about Buckley escaping with a couple of friends. They go back, but he makes it slowly around uh, Port Phillip and he then gives a narration about his time with the uh, Waterong people, but also there's uh, what I hope will be um, a lovely love duet between him and Shanti as Parin Mernin, who's one of the three wives that he took, but we have reduced it to one. Uh, sorry, I have a question. So William Buckley, he was six foot six apparently. Yes. Big man, illiterate as well, which is, you know, most people were. But he was, apparently he left Melbourne after Batman arrived with all the rest of them. Yeah. Um, and went back to Hobart because he was so disgusted by what they were doing with the, uh, with the Aboriginals and with the country yes. around them. So uh, do you bring that into the story or not at all? Uh, yes, that, that comes into the story at the end. And, and did he have any children with these, with the, um, Aboriginal? Yes, he did. And that's referred to in the opera as well. Uh, okay. She great. doesn't appear, but uh, she is referred to. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's amazing. Um, now, 
Now, I've, I've had a look at the, uh, your program, and there's something that I want to ask you about, which is in that program, which I think is really fascinating. And um, it says in there, as a result of his extensive immersion in operatic roles, this is referring to you, of course, um, uh, Anthony, um, he studied in Germany and became a, a psychotherapist, and out of which you've written a book about operatic archetypes. Now, that really fascinated me because... Uh, I understand, I understand that there are Chinese archetypes. I, I mean, I'm, I don't know a lot about opera. I put my hand up straight away. I better disclaim that in, initially. But I didn't understand that, that there were operatic archetypes, European operatic archetypes. And just telling the story that you did just then, I realized there is a formula, isn't there? You can say that. And mm. if you look at Hollywood film, Hollywood films, there's, there's quite a lot of archetypal work, quite deliberately worked into it. Um, Jungian archetypes, uh, have, have been around for a long, long time, but Jung really looked at them and, and described them in the, the middle of the last century. And I think it's coming back in to some extent. But very, very briefly, um, I discovered when I read a book by Professor Robert Donington, who was an expert on early music, but also he wrote a book called Wagner's Ring and Its Symbols. And I had a, a personal epiphany reading that book. Um, and I realized, and I went along and had an, uh, uh, an interview with him, uh, where he said, um, uh, I've written that book, there it is over there in the corner, uh, but you go ahead anyway and write your book. Uh, but what I what he suggested I do is give lectures about it. So what I uh, discovered after reading his book was that you can apply this to any opera. It can be Verdi, it can be Puccini, and so on. And uh, if you look at the characters and their interactions on the stage and identify with those, you can actually find a way into developing your own personality by seeing secret things uh, which uh, you're actively projecting onto those people on the stage and using those interactions to develop your own uh, personality through the music with its emotional component. Wow, well, there's an element we hadn't thought of. That's extraordinary. What was no, your book? It, it's interesting because I found that, that article about about Anthony also very interesting that he should, be, should study psychotherapy yes. after um, you looking into opera. And I found yeah. what is the connection exactly? But I guess what you're saying is what happens with television and rock music as well. People identify with the the mystery of what this person, these people are putting out, yeah. and and take it in. So it's, it's the myths that surround us. It's the myths that surround. It's yeah. a mystery, which is what for me comes back to our in general is the mystery and the myths behind it which which in, encourages us to live really yeah absolutely mm. totally fascinating well we will keep uh, we will really keep watching this it sounds like an extraordinary project and uh, as i said i'm going to put links up on our facebook page for both for the website for the opera but also for the um for the uh, funding, if you are interested in, in helping this this project get along, which of course I'm sure lots of you out there will be, there's a launch this this April on the 15th. Uh, I'm sure that there will be information about that on your website. Was that correct, Anthony? Um, uh, it's not on the website, so I'd better mention it now. Yes, okay. Um, it's at 2 p.m. at the settlement, uh, 2 p.m. on Sunday, the 15th of April, and everybody's invited. Wonderful. Well, Buckley, the opera, is going to be performed in conjunction with the Rosebud Astral Theatre Society at the Memorial Hall in Rosebud on the 4th or 5th of May in 2019 as part of the 2019 National Trust Australian Heritage Festival. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Anthony Ransom. It's so fascinating. I'm going to, as I said, I'll put links up. We'll keep a close eye on this and good luck with it. Thanks very much, Sally. Thanks. Good morning, Dr. Gabe. I'm back with you again. 
on Arts About in your office this time. Hello, Will. Yeah. Last time we met, I think, was at your splendid little home, and I very much enjoyed the coffee and the apple Danish. Thank oh, good. Uh, uh, thank you very much. Plural, Will. Pl- uh, Danishes. Danish, yeah, Danishes. Yeah, you punched down a few. I hope you yeah. had a long walk after that, because you would have done some calories that morning. I walked Blackie the guard dog Fantastic. after that, and I've left him uh, at, at home now chewing a pig's ear, which is the sort of thing a good guard dog will eat. Any time, but last time we spoke, you were you were mentioning the Gardner heist, and I let me see if I've got this correct. That the Gardner heist is a private gallery in Boston. Correct. Um, it's not Martha Gardner who makes the Washington turn. <laughs> no, no, that's exactly right. <laughs> Isabella Stewart Gardner. Shortly after midnight, uh, March eighteenth, nineteen ninety. Yep. Two men broke into the Gardner Museum, mm-hmm. the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum mm-hmm. in Boston, and committed the largest art heist in history. You've got a very good memory for a man of your age. Mm. I know that they stole a dozen of the great masterpieces, mm-hmm. including a Vermeer, a couple of Rembrandts, and and five Degas. Oh, extraordinary. Uh, despite a $5 million reward, mm-hmm. none of the paintings have ever been recovered. Is that correct? That is absolutely right. It's one of the great enduring mysteries of the art world. Those paintings now would be worth, on today's market, if they ever came About $500 million? $500 million, yeah. half a billion dollars. Correct. Can we re- revisit this? Because uh, I was thinking about it after we last spoke, and it made me wonder, with that sort of loot that's involved, <laughs> assuming that you could ever sell these works, is uh, the art theft business, is it becoming a booming industry or how does this work? Too right it is. It's estimated that the current value of the stolen art trade is somewhere between 4 and $6 billion. Once one of the largest black markets in the world and most heists don't make the headlines. I wonder whether you can imagine why museums don't let you know when uh, works have been stolen, Will. Well, I, I can only imagine that it's it's uh, it's not very good publicity Correct. for the security system. You're right, because museums and private collections don't want the public to know how vulnerable they mm. actually are. The Art Loss Registers database of stolen art includes 609 Picassos, 181 Rembrandts, 173 Warhols, and Caravaggio's masterpiece, in my view, one of the great works of all time, which is entitled Nativity with San Lorenzo and San Francesco. And uh, they they say that the they call it the lost museum will the museum of all of the art if you could possibly fill one um, gallery with all of those um, stolen pieces it would be the most impressive collection ever created the lost museum they say um, would make the Louvre seem like Tyab's antiques and collectibles barn wow and that's pretty good over there <laughs> it's too right <laughs> it is um, that's extraordinary have you got a personal theory about what happened to the Gardner gallery paintings? Yeah, I do. I mean, last week we talked about um, the fact that there is no one single profile of an art thief. But I think that um, the work that was conducted by the FBI and a few uh, other enthusiasts uh, who studied the Gardner heist, I think I've got a a best guess to, to offer, and that's that it was the IRA. I'll tell you why I think it was the IRA. 
um, they had a criminal devotion to Vermeers. It, would not, it was certainly not the first time that Vermeers had been lifted by members of the IRA. They've swiped paintings on at least three different occasions, their biggest caper being in 1974, which was not long before the Gardner heist. And um, at that time, there was a fervent nationalist, a woman actually, with three thugs, who robbed Rusborough House just south of Dublin. Is Brendan an Irish name? Oh, I know where you're coming from now. Sorry to butt in, but I'm just... You trying to implicate some no, of our no, colleagues no. at RWP? I would never do that. Well, in this case, it was a woman uh, who spearheaded the uh, operation with her three thugs who tied up the owners before fleeing with 19 paintings, including a Goya, a Gainsborough and Vermeer's lady writing a letter with her maid. Now, that collection was valued at more than $20 million, and it was the largest heist in the UK at the time. In that particular instance, a week after the break-in, the Irish government received a ransom note, and in exchange for the stolen paintings, the thieves wanted 40 million bucks and the release of four Irish political prisoners. The police didn't negotiate, they refused, and they actually went door-to-door in search of the loot, which they did recover. But... I think that one of the great similarities between what had gone on in the 1974 heist south of Dublin and the Gardner heist was the fact that there was an approach made by a party who wanted to negotiate for the return of the paintings. They knew that they couldn't get rid of them on the open art, stolen art market. However, in this particular instance, with the Gardner heist, as the two fake coppers left the museum they checked the well-being of one of the taped up guards but they said tell your people they'll be hearing from us which makes you think that the original intent had something to do with a ransom that for some reason maybe because once the collection of stolen works that were scarpered off that evening were assembled in some studio or in some garage they just realized the magnitude of what they had and knew that 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 a ransom simply wasn't on the on the table it's not going to work is it interestingly though in the case of the Gardner Museum I understand people are still coming into the Gardner Museum and and a pain to go in there to look at the empty frames in situ yeah you're absolutely right people make a pilgrimage to see art that isn't there that's almost an art statement in itself isn't it well i'd certainly advise any of our listeners if they go to boston to go and see the isabella stewart gardner museum because it has still despite its tragic loss an incredibly profound collection of european and american art but i think people visit today because the highest has resonated in the collective psyche in the same way as if we were to hear that Shakespeare's Hamlet was just erased forever from our lives or if you could never hear your favourite song again. The absence of this, I think, resonates with people and apparently there was a story about three months after the Gardner heist where a nicely dressed woman in her sort of mid-50s, mid-60s walked in holding a bunch of yellow tulips and she approached the director of the museum and handed them to him and said, there's still hope. And I think that's a probably a lovely way to leave this discussion about the Gardner heist. Yeah, although I have to say we we call it our little section that we do on our allotted time on the this very strict show, The Profound Thread, and I'm trying to make a link with The Profound Thread that we've talked about that links all of this art and the artists and it's interesting in this case that three of our own people in the Arts About program have a 
kind of a link to art theft without being thieves. But uh, our own Swanee used to work as a night porter in one of the great old Melbourne private clubs. Oh, the Australia Club, of course. I he didn't think used... we should mention the Australia Club. Really? <laughs> well, he used to sleep underneath one of the, the McCubbins or a street and all something well, on his night shift. I think when everybody went home and it was his job to make sure that everyone had left the building, <laughs> which he would check, and then he'd lock it up. And he was usually so tired at the end of the night that he would curl up and have a little nap and he would sleep under one of the great McCubbins that, <laughs> that was hanging there. And I believe also Donna who we hear from in our What's On section, in another life she has worked as a caterer. And I know that in catering in some of these places, she it was so stunned by the quality of the art, the original Australian art that was hanging on the walls in this vast establishment that was virtually uninhabited, except when there was a cocktail party on, that she and some of her staff actually ran an experiment where they turned some of the paintings upside down on the walls and <laughs> left them that way and found that no one noticed. Good uh, God. No one noticed at all. They'd come back the next week to set up for another cocktail party and some of the paintings were still upside down, which made her wonder about security in, in these uh, these sort of places. And our own John Baird, we must ask him more about the weeping mm. woman incident in Melbourne. Indeed, I believe he was loitering around the locker room at Flinders Street Station well, no, shortly before the recovery. In, I, think, <laughs> I think he was hauled in for questioning. So, <laughs> I know he's not an art thief, but uh, he's had a direct link with that. So I guess that's a bit of a tenuous link, but that's the, probably the way the profound thread affects us. Uh, we can go back and link our own people to some of this. That's been fascinating talking about that. On the subject of art theft and art heists, we could talk forever because the Picassos and the Monks and and great artists like that have featured in some of these great thefts. Perhaps we could pick it up again another time. When we're talking about something else, we might relate that to some of the great thefts. Thanks for having me in your office. I've got to take off. I guess you've got to get back to work, so I'll get out of your hair. And we'll go back to you in the studio. Goodbye. Hey, John. Uh, we just had Will and Gabe. I don't know whether you heard that. He probably oh, I did. heard the end of it. I heard Will sort of referring to the fact that I'd been hauled in for questioning, <laughs> which was in fact true. But um, where I am at the moment, all these art seems to have been stolen from. Where you are at the moment? Where are you exactly that, at the moment? Seem to, there's none apparent anyway. But, you know, where... Amanda and I are at the uh, RWP apartment on the central coast of New South Wales. Oh, are you? You're on your way back. And I don't know how Brendan pulled this one off, but uh, the apartment's in a kind of resort complex. Really? You know those places where people... There's a pool with um, sun benches all the way around it and girls walking around with trays of drinks with umbrellas in them, that yes. kind of thing. John, you've only got seven minutes. That's exactly where I am at the moment. Amanda, I think, is upstairs (laughs) with um, a couple of bits of cucumber on her eyes and someone massaging her hand. Morning, John. Good morning, Mark. You've been familiar with this territory, I'm sure. I am, but let's let's get on to the uh, Triennale, huh? No, I haven't seen any of that. Right. Well, you better get back to Sydney then. I'm I'm not impressed. From what I hear, there've been a lot of red dots. Uh, yes, that's all gone very well, and um, I'm absolutely delighted, actually, with the way it's gone, and there's plenty to do in the future. Um, one of the people we met 
at the opening with uh, a woman who owns a what is was described by some people as the most beautiful yacht on Sydney Harbour, which is hard to imagine. But uh, this a boat called Defiance, and it was uh, a Digby built boat from Port Phillip in 1930. Oh, really? Um, and it's an eight metre class racing yacht, um, oh. fully restored, and she took a sailing on it. Oh, how marvellous. On the harbour, on a beautiful evening, so that was fantastic. Well, I can um, I can see why you haven't been out traipsing around looking at galleries. Oh, ask, John. You'd rather be on a boat, would you? And you didn't see the lady in the unicorn, uh, either? No, I haven't yeah. seen any art, Mark. Well, you're fine. Yeah. No okay. art. But oh, so I am well. going back to have a look at... Um, we'll be back in Sydney soon, and we'll have a look at some art when we're there, and I'll be skirting around IYY and looking at uh, as many such other stuff as I can. Oh, that's good. Well, at least we'll hear a little Mark, bit about that. Mm-hmm. You'd be interested to know before I come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're doing, we've got another boat trip coming up. We've um, met a fellow who owns a lobster boat on Sydney Harbour, and he's going to take me out catching and kingfish fishing. Mm. Kingfish that's, fishing. Yeah, we're going to go and catch some kingfish. Oh, oh my goodness me! Uh, is he also buying paintings? Everybody's buying paintings, Mark. Okay, John, we're looking at the right It's very exciting news. It's lovely to hear. So Regatta's been a great success. That's it, John. It has been a great success, yeah. Yeah, that's terrific. Everyone's delighted, including me. Yeah, well, that's terrific. Well, and uh, I'll bet Amanda I'll is too. I'll have a pina colada, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> All right, then, will you... i little flag up next to the bench here where I'm laying on, uh, you know. So right. Number 91, they'll know where I am. Well, you get back to it then and uh, come back with... Fabulous tales of daring do when uh, we get you back on the behind the microphone next week. It's great to talk to you today. Glad to hear that uh, the exhibition's gone so well. Thanks. Yeah, lots of love. See, See you soon. Bye bye. Bye. So uh, it's over to you now, Mark. Thank you, Sally. Well, I'm very disappointed that John didn't see the lady in the unicorn. What's the lady in the unicorn? They're tapestries from the 15th century, Middle Ages, from oh. France, um, which were found in a, in a chateau in 1841 and are now being shown at the Art Gallery of New South Wales in a, a darkened gallery because preservation purposes, but also so that people can get a really good experience through the senses. Now, Christopher Allen has uh, reviewed this in the last... Oh, yes, he's your favourite uh, art favorite journalist. He's my critic, yep. And I'm just going to quote him. Mm-hmm. Art is experienced through the senses before being interpreted by the imagination and reflected on by the intellect. So it's a, you know, the yeah, it's a three-stage project. Exactly. Mm-hmm. In contemporary Western consumer culture, there is a certain tendency to obtuseness that can affect even people who believe they like art. The problem seems to be more than a lack of sophistication. It is a rather an alienation from the senses, which I think is an extremely important point for a lot of people in the world in general, is that, is that they are alienated from their five senses. They just seem to work automatically. They're not, they're not actually taking control of their own senses. Uh, which leads to an inability to perceive or respond to refined and complex sensory data. Uh, 
This is why not only commercial entertainment and the mass media, but even what purpose to be serious art is lacking in real aesthetic subtlety. So this comes back to my idea again about the, you know, the mystery of art and the fact that it's something you do have to use your imagination and your brain. It's not just something you can look at and flesh on. Ideas, ideology and good intentions are no substitutes for the irreducible imaginative meanings conceived and conveyed in art. So once again, against the p- politics. That's why I like Christopher, because he agrees mm-hmm. with me so much. Okay. <laughs> do you, does so, he agree with you or do you agree with him? Do you, well, think? Bit, we uh, both like, yeah, do you know both. him? No, I've never met him, mm-hmm. but I, I would like to. I'm sure I will one, one day and probably be bitterly disappointed. But anyway... So just to move on yes, okay. to uh, Facebook yes. and Uber, um, I, there was a woman who was killed last week by a uh, self-driving Uber. Her name was Elaine Hertzberg. She was a 49-year-old woman walking down a street in Arizona, and she was killed by an Uber self-driving car. So I didn't know. Are there actually Uber self-driving cars? Well, no, cars? they've got an assistant, and this is the in- in- interesting thing. There's an assistant driver in the yes. car as well. What 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 I'd like to know, I haven't heard yet, was she looking at her telephone? Was she ordering an Uber maybe and that came a bit quicker than she thought? Or I, you know, was she looking at her telephone is the first question. The second question is the assistant driver who was apparently who apparently has a criminal history, including driving without a license, which is just hilarious, sorry. Was he looking at his telephone? Because apparently he was looking down when the car smashed into poor Elaine Hertzenberg. So that's just a little question um, about technology yes. and you know, what's, what people are going on. The next problem is Facebook and the Cambridge Analytica, which I don't know whether any of you have been looking into this, but the fact that this guy, this uh, company, oh, got yes. through a, um, a, a, an app provider who uh, had an app called This Is Your Digital File, 270,000 people downloaded the app. They didn't read the fine detail, the line when they agreed, consented. And they, what it said was that they were also sharing their friends' data. So instead of having 270,000 people's data, they had 50 million people's Incredible. data. Which they then sold on to um, Steve Bannon from uh, Donald Trump's campaign, which he used to pinpoint ads to send to people. Now, that's one thing. It's uh, the money which is involved in, in this data collection, which is a big problem. But what they're saying is that with Facebook, you are the fodder for Facebook clients. The clients are the advertisers who pay enormous sums of money to send you personalized ads. Personalization in advertising is nearly indistinguishable from surveillance. How do you say it? Surveillance. Surveillance. And personalization is at the heart of how Facebook makes money. Okay, so... You know, they're making, after, you know, the company started in 2004. Um, uh, what's his name? Mark Zuckerberg's now worth uh, $70 billion. That's not bad in that's $70 billion, dollars, In yes. 14 years. He lost $9 billion of the, those dollars last week because of the problem with the analytical, um, with their, their taking all these people's data. What they're saying is they, Another problem is that Facebook encourages people to passively consume friends' posts, which apparently has a negative effect on psychology. I don't oh. know about this. I don't know. No. I mean, they're, 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 
amount of psychological fodder that there must be in actually breaking down what is actually going, going on, on in social media is just extraordinary. Story, yeah. When you see the political implications and the effects that, it, that it's having, it's all of a sudden waking people up and we're actually, every, like the general public, all of a sudden up. thinking, oh my goodness, this is actually really, really, really significant. It yeah. is, it's dangerous. And by using algorithms to target the most in, in, engaging content, including lucrative ads, Facebook and its ilk become vehicles for spreading disinformation and and um, sowing sowing division. Now, this Cambridge Analytica mm. is just a small company, and they are uh, they sold this information onto onto Donald Trump, who was able to target voters. And this is a, a politically a very dangerous thing. Um, the other person who's involved in this is um, Jeff Bezos, who's worth one hundred twenty billion dollars, and. You know, all these, what these people were saying is we have to destroy to create. And it's true in many ways, but the, you know, what they're destroying are, are not only all the um, retailers and everyone else, but uh, people's um, self-esteem. People, people are losing their own sense of identity because of what they're doing, what they're giving away to all these people. So I think you've just got to be very careful. And it's only the beginning. Well, quite. I think, I think there's got to be um, a great investigation into it, and we should all be extremely careful. Well, into Apple, Facebook, Google, <coughs> and Amazon, all four of them. Yeah. Yes, and presumably Twitter as well. I mean, Twitter that's, that's as also well, showing political information. Well, Instagram and WhatsApp are part of Facebook anyway. Yes. They, they said this is one of the problems. They shouldn't have been, been allowed to buy these what were yes. competitors. Yes, that's right. And, uh, well, it's like what they do with the media outlets, of course. You know, there, there was controls over who should own what and yes. how because of that control of information. Yes. Well, this, this is what is they're exactly doing. What's they're saying that, that they're, yes. they're no longer considered... Uh, uh, mm. they, they are not, they've got to take the responsibility of publishers, mm. which is what they're doing. Mm. So we'll see. Yeah. But just keep off Facebook. Keep Sorry. off Facebook, everybody. I agree. Except go and look on our Facebook page <laughs> because I've got lots of links of it on there. Now, listen, um, we might play a little bit of music here. The 101ers. It's time for the news, Mark. Here we go. Where's the music? I don't know. We've lost it. Okay. It doesn't matter. We know the news. See, I'm sure Brody will find it while we're talking. <laughs> What's coming up? Oh, hey, oh. there we are. <laughs> there it is. It doesn't feel like the news without that. No, music, it doesn't. Does it? doesn't <laughs> Buckley the Opera, coming to Rosebud on the 4th or 5th of May in uh, 2019. It's a fair way away. But I know that they're looking for funding and I'd encourage any of you out there who are interested in opera to go along to the um, to the organisation, the Australian... Uh, I'll put a link on our Facebook page and you can actually contribute to it. Frankenstein starring Janelle de Silva <coughs> is on at Kaz uh, Tops Dirty Secrets in Hollywood, Collingwood on the 28th of March. Go to the Comedy Festival website for tickets. Yes, that's right. Now, I just wanted to put a little aside in here. The Arts Party, which you, as some of you may remember I actually ran for uh, at the election, the last federal election, they're still going strong and they're growing their membership base and heading towards this next election. They're looking for new members, of course, but they, I think that I'm, I think I'm going to try and get PJ um, Collins in for a chat about that soon. But have a look at their website to find out if you're interested to register as a member and help ensure the arts don't get neglected like they usually do. 
Il, uh, Lola Greenus, uh, Cultural Jewels, also some workshops happening <coughs> there over the Easter holiday for kids, grass drawing with artist Kiri Povensand, workshops for various aged young people. Check out their website. That's the MPRG. The MPRG, yes. Yes, yes. At, the, at the top of that. John Baird has had a fabulous exhibition, a regatta, on at uh, Art House Gallery in Sydney. If you want to have a look at seeing what he's been doing, you can probably go onto their website and have a look. Mm. The 21st Biennale of Sydney calendar of public programs and events is live. Now you can go to the website to see what's on. Uh, um, later on in the week at the Franson Art Centre, Glorious uh, is on. That's the story of Florence Foster Jenkins. We spoke to Diana McLean last week about mm. that. Uh, she's one of the worst opera singers in history. And uh, you can get to see a show about her on at the Franson Art Centre. There is a new Easter Salon Art Parade coming up on March 31st at Whistlewood. Aboriginal works and informative commentary by Susan McCulloch. It's free, but you can register your place on Eventbrite. Oh, I think we might have just missed that, but the exhibition okay. is still there. It's and still will remain on, there yeah. over Easter, and you can get along to go and see that. Yeah. The Melbourne International Comedy Festival is looming. Um, well, in fact, it's loomed. It's here, and it's on until the 22nd of April. There's all sorts of things on there. We talked to Janelle De Silva about her show on, um, and uh, there are more coming. So if you've just tuned in, you've missed Arts About, but you can hear the repeat on Wednesdays at 12 or listen to, to the podcasts or on the session as well. Well, in fact, actually, the podcasts, I have discovered, are disgracefully behind. And uh, hopefully uh, they will pick up. So don't bother about the postca- uh, podcast yet. Um, but uh, I'll let you know when they seem to have managed to get up to speed. We'll be on again same time next week, Sunday at 11. You can find some links to some of the things we've been talking about today on our Facebook page and get to hear about what's coming up next, well as, uh, next week as well if you like our page. Remember, everybody, we may not know everything about art. We do our best. We do our best. That's exactly right.